this is the all-American session <laughs> strand, however <laughs> you like to, to, to frame it. And Erin McKellar is going to be talking about the, um, I've got to get these, these, um, these exhibitions straight. Good housekeeping. Uh, it depends on, on the good, good housekeeping depends on housing. what? It depends on you. <laughs> I'll put my glasses on. <laughs> <laughs> the glasses okay. have become an issue. I've lost a pair, broken a pair, and found a pair. So, good housekeeping. Good housing depends on you. Wartime housing, 1942. Museum of Modern Art. Yeah. Please. Did you do anything about the lights? Is that going to work? I'm just, I'm at what? George, Resurgent Direction. Good, that can and I, I think you've got the mic. Oh, Hold on. Maybe a little signal that the time is going. Okay, I guess this is. Well, thank you everybody for coming on um, the last day in sort of the middle of the morning once you've hopefully not exhausted yourselves after the first. At the opening of wartime housing on April 22, 1942, John Hay Whitney, president of New York's Moder Museum of Modern Art, recognized an unexpected opportunity in the Second World War. Modern design, he noted, and I quote, serves the best purpose now, and when we win the victory, well-planned housing can contribute in beauty and usefulness to a happy peace, end quote. As the war demanded shelter for American war workers, advocates of, of modern housing saw an opportunity to rethink dwellings on a mass scale. This opportunity had critical implications for the post-war years, as much urban and rural housing for middle and low income families needed modernization. American architects and housing experts sought public support for these ideas during wartime by promoting them in a series of exhibitions. These displays demonstrated present housing needs and proposed that new materials, modern building techniques, and careful planning would both modernize dwellings and revitalize communities for decades to come. Examining the exhibition Wartime Housing, one scene of which is pictured here, illuminates the ways in which its organizers framed the conflict as an opportunity to create better housing. They employed innovative exhibition strategies to communicate these ideas to an audience composed largely of non-professionals. A collaborative effort of the National Committee on the Housing Emergency, the National Housing Agency, and MoMA Wartime housing sought to illustrate the integral role that housing played in the war effort. This exhibition depicted American housing need and claimed that the lessons learned from defense housing efforts would create permanent communities with lives beyond the war years. In so doing, organizers anticipated an improved post-war future and reassured visitors that the conflict's end would bring about a better world. The outbreak of the war in Europe significantly increased all American production. Migrations of people accompanied this increase as thousands of factories for the manufacture of munitions, airplanes, and transport de demanded that skilled and unskilled workers relocate in large numbers to both existing and newly developed production sites. 
Because war production doubled or tripled the population of these manufacturing centers, demand for housing far outstripped supply. The government recognized this shortage at a, as a critical economic and social problem. So you can see here that some of the strategies that were taken were actually, you know, to publicize that you could actually find housing through these other means, even though there was an extreme shortage. In June 1940, Congress authorized the U.S. Housing Authority to use public funds to construct 20 new housing developments for civilian employees of both the armed forces and defense contractors. The National Defense Housing Act of October 1940 provided massive federal funds to build housing as well as vital neighborhood amenities such as schools, childcare facilities, and recreation areas to serve rapidly growing defense industries. In February 1942, President Roosevelt extended these efforts through an executive order that consolidated all governmental housing activities, not only those affiliated with the war, into a na single national housing agency under a single administrator. Consolidation did not significantly change the purposes of the existing housing program, but sort of shifted its focus out of necessity from building permanent housing developments to providing temporary housing unless a particular community demonstrated a need for sustainable dwellings. The result of these undertakings was actually really substantial. Between 1940 and 1944, 625,000 units, 580,000 of which were temporary, were produced in what was widely viewed as the most ambitious housing program worldwide. Both national and international publications promoted the most successful of the permanent projects, touting them as modern in terms of aesthetics, conveniences, materials, construction methods, and community planning. Because this promotion was also in some respects a justification of the housing expenditure, Many of these publications also connected the construction of such housing to the success of American defense, and you can see how this is done visually in this spread. For example, in this article in the April 1942 issue of the Architectural Record, Dorothy Rosenman, chair of the National Committee on the Housing Emergency, insisted that the war was won fought by civilians as well as the armed forces. Victory, she proclaimed, quote, depends on the manpower behind production machines, and men and women cannot work at the top efficiency our situation demands if they are not housed under circumstances that will assure their continuing ability to stay on the job. Thus, adequate housing for war, war workers becomes truly part of our national assembly line." End quote. Furthermore, these publications anticipated the ways in which the lessons learned in wartime could be applied more widely in peacetime. Catherine Bauer, Vice President of the California Housing and Planning Association and a leader in the movement towards social housing in the United States, proclaimed that the war was prov providing, quote, vast laboratory experience with experimental building methods and prefabrication, with large-scale community planning, with rental management and upkeep, and with streamlined production practices, end quote. Although much of the new housing was conceived as temporary, Bauer insisted that the experience of providing housing on a mass scale was what would revitalize the building industry in the post-war era. So in 
So while professional audiences were relatively easy to convince because these ideas were largely familiar to them, trade publicity did little to foster understanding of the building program in the minds of the American public. Examples of war worker housing did appear as photographs in popular publications, so the New York Times, Life, for example, but these were unable to bridge the gap between professional ideas and public understanding. But exhibitions had long been a means of displaying complicated architectural ideas to non-professional publics, and the medium of the exhibition therefore became the preferred interface for granting American citizens access to such ideas during wartime. In the middle of 1941, the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota collaborated with the U.S. Army and was among the first institutions in the United States to organize such an exhibition. Entitled, America Builds for Defense, this display was open at the Walker's Galleries from September 3rd to October 5th, 1941. Notably, this exhibition took place prior to the entry of the U.S. into the war while the conflict remained very unpopular with Americans. It was vital, therefore, for the U.S. Army to curry public support for defense efforts, many of which centered on preparation and on construction. Curated by Marion Lyne for the Walker, the exhibition illustrated that successful defense activities must begin with construction, specifically maximum quantity in minimum time. Wall panels insisted that the newly enlisted soldiers needed places to work, rest, play, and sleep. And they illustrated that new cities arose where weeds grew to become the foundation for defense. The exhibition also insisted on viewer involvement, asking, what are you doing for national defense? And this is our America, are you fighting for it? A companion traveling display pictured here, condensed these ideas so that they would reach much larger audiences. But the exhibition at the Walker Arts Center aimed to demonstrate the importance of building in general to the success of American defense, and only a small component focused on housing. Thus, in 1942, the National Committee on the Housing Emergency and the National Housing Agency thought it vital to focus directly on housing. These organizations collaborated with MoMA to explain why housing, in particular, was crucial to the war effort. Further, the exhibition insisted that architect design housing, especially, was necessary and displayed its argument through a combination graphic-dramatic installation. The exhibition's content, examples of wartime and pre-war architect designed housing that illustrated new methods and the best contemporary design, was selected, assembled, and installed by Elliot Noyes, director of the Department of Industrial Design, with the assistance of Alice Carson, also of MoMA, and Don Hatch, a New York architect. After a planning period of about four months, wartime housing opened on Wednesday, April 22, 1942, and ran through the end of July of the same year. Wartime housing's goal was twofold. First, it was essential to demonstrate that war material could only be produced if sufficient labor was present to keep the factories running. Because workers needed dwellings, housing was essential to the war production program. This goal aligned with Dorothy Rosenman's role in the collaborating organization, the National Committee on the Housing Emergency. In her capacity as chair, Rosenman sought sought to ensure widespread citizen cooperation by unifying representatives of diverse fields 
such as architecture, engineering, city planning, real estate, finance, public administration, and the social sciences. In so doing, the committee hoped to ensure a well-rounded approach to war the war housing effort with the support and understanding of ordinary American citizens. Second, the exhibition's organizers wished to illustrate that creating successful housing required careful collaborative planning to ensure that wartime housing efforts would not produce post-war slums or ghost towns. While this goal, too, aligned with those of the National Committee on the Housing Emergency, it also connected to the museum's own ongoing project. By focusing on careful planning, the exhibition's coordinators continued a tradition of displaying architectural design that MoMA had established in the early 1930s. From its origins, MoMA exhibition organizers had been invested in showing American audiences the best examples of modern housing in exhibitions such as Modern Architecture in 1932 and America Can't Have Housing in 1934. On the occasion of the opening of MoMA's new building on May 8, 1939, President Roosevelt broadcasted a radio address in which he termed housing the great social art. And he insisted that its provision was one of the, quote, most formidable challenges to a democracy. In the decade to follow, MoMA staged numerous housing-related exhibitions, responding directly to this challenge to democracy. In the same radio address, Roosevelt had insisted that MoMA, as a democratic institution that was integral to American society, must enrich and invigorate American cultural life by bringing modern art to all American people. In order to communicate, then, complex ideas about housing and community planning to a wide non-professional audience, Noyes employed a number of innovative techniques that appealed to visitors emotionally. Past MoMA architectural exhibitions had relied largely on photographs and models to communicate visual information to visitors. Noyes utilized photographs as well, but displayed them in a more explicitly interactive way that it adopted a populist approach to exhibition design that has been seen in other MoMA exhibitions of the period, but was very unique to an architectural exhibition. Noyes had gained experience with such interactive display strategies in the 1941 exhibition of the prize-winning objects from the Organic Design and Home Furnishings <coughs> competition. Here he created a display that connected retail shopping with museum objects. User experience was a key dimension of this display, which was active rather than passive once the visitors progressed beyond the exhibition's more didactic timeline component. In order to illustrate the approachability of the prize-winning objects, Noyes, along with representatives from Bloomingdale's department store, arranged the objects in room-like configurations that maintained the dynamism of a shopping experience. Vid visitors were encouraged to sit on the chairs and sofas in order to experience that modern furniture was just as comfortable as furniture of the past. To demonstrate that the objects on display could accommodate a range of user <coughs> needs, signs throughout the exhibition announced that guards would arrange the units upon request. In so doing, MoMA illustrated that the prize-winning objects facilitated diverse, individualized experience, thus revealing the potential that modern furniture held and indicated that users could easily incorporate such objects into their everyday lives.
While organic design drew inspiration from department stores and furniture showrooms, wartime housing derived its narrative arc, collage-like Im imagery, and use in sound of sound from motion pictures and newsreels to captivate a diverse lay public that was increasingly familiar with films. Noise divided the exhibition into a series of 10 scenes composed of still photographs as well as moving imagery that depicted shortage, construction, and renewal. Scenes one through two provided projected production figures and established that the American housing shortage was already acute prior to the start of the defense program in 1940. Scenes three through six provided conflict. In scene three, workers confronted inadequate housing conditions in wartime industrial towns, and scene four suggested that workers would move away from these towns, thus not producing the material needed to win battles. Scene five emphasized, therefore, that it was crucial to construct worker housing in quantity, and scene six, pictured here, explained how this task could be accomplished using prefabricated components that would yield quick on-site assembly. Various cinematic elements, such as dramatic lighting, sound, and displays constructed from different materials and different colors, accompanied each scene in order to transform each into an immersive environment intended to appeal to visitors' emotions. For example, the exhibition's third scene, pictured on the screen, was low-lit with a floor constructed from sound-dampening material to heighten the dramatic effect of the floor-to-ceiling photographs that depicted the squalor of inadequate housing. Meanwhile, in the exhibition's fifth scene, visitors confronted a brightly lit empty room in which a voice on loop proclaimed, housing can lose the war, time is short, and we must build against a background of sounds that included a ticking clock, muffled explosions, and the drone of bombers. And Hatch, the organizer, the, one of the co-organizers in a letter to Noyes and Carson had actually said that he hoped it would provoke a sort of response as the film Birth of a Nation had. Scenes seven through 10 proposed the narrative's resolution. <coughs> Noyes, Carson, and Hatch collected photographic examples of communities designed by architects such as Vernon DeMars, Eero Sarnen, and Louis Kahn, all architects who had developed in international reputations prior to the war. These featured communities provided models that visitors should demand their local officials to emulate. Indeed, the exhibition's penultimate scene solicited direct participation from visitors by introducing their role in the planning process as individual citizens, members of voluntary groups, and municipal employees. Wartime housing thus not only anticipated a material future beyond the years of the war, but also hinted toward a reevaluation of domestic architecture that would continue into the following decades. Wartime housing was received with favorable reviews and, perhaps as a result, had a considerable afterlife. MoMA quickly translated the exhibition's content into a photographic display that circulate, circulated throughout the U.S. in 42 and 43. Moreover, this content also reached a transatlantic audience when the Royal Institute of British Architects, after the success of its Rebuilding Britain exhibition, wished to stage an exhibition devoted solely to the question of housing. Since the RIBA was unable to organize such an exhibition itself, 
It turned to the U.S. Office of War Information for assistance. The OWI commissioned MoMA with the task. At this time, the museum translated wartime housing into a second traveling photographic exhibition entitled American Housing and War and Peace, which ran from July 19th through August 28th, 1944 at the RIBA's Portland Place headquarters in London. This exhibition was conceived and designed by Mary Cook with Captain Bauer as consultant, as well as with the assistant of the British graphic designer FHK Henrian. This display outlined American strategies for emergency and low-cost housing. It was specifically designed to facilitate travel and displayed photographs, diagrams, and text on flat panels and then emphasized how new materials and methods of construction could be used by using many of the same examples that appeared in wartime housing. This exhibition contended that Britain could learn much from America about housing specifically how to build large-scale developments with speed and economy. While these traveling displays jettisoned Noyes' ambitious arrangements and sound and elements, their portability introduced modern domestic architecture to many more museum goers than could travel to MoMA. And this later iteration also traveled to places like South Africa and Australia. Ultimately, wartime housing was invested simultaneously in justification and edification. The exhibition's organizers sought to justify the expense of the building program and to inform viewers that planning, along with modern architectural construction and design, held great promise for the future. The display tactics that Noyes employed, therefore, were essential to introduce a non-professional audience to abstract ideas. In this case, the relationship between war production and housing and the use of planning to provide for peacetime needs and to render these ideas more concrete and thus more accessible. These strategies also lent a glamorous cinematic quality to the exhibition. The scenes formed a narrative arc that appealed emotionally to a lay public that was familiar with motion pictures and newsreels. Future traveling iterations lost Noise's innovative visuals, but physically brought the content of wartime housing to many more people. In so doing, Wartime housing prompted the public to demand all that which modern architecture and planning could offer for the future. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah.